first time I saw that clip, I was amazed and shocked that somebody had made a commercial about biblical community. All these different people coming together, this long table, different backgrounds, different ages coming together to celebrate. Then I realized it was a Walmart commercial and (laughs) wasn't quite the same impact that I had hoped when I saw the advertisement at the end. I kept the Walmart logo off just for your sake, but if you YouTube that, that's what that is. Um, But when I first saw it, there was something about it that like drew me in. Like I really, I love that commercial and I, I really couldn't put my finger on what it was about what it was I liked. I think at first I thought it was the chairs because, you know, I don't know, the chairs, everybody bringing their chairs and going through traffic jams over the countryside and back of cars. One guy's actually making his own chair. Um, you know, there's something about chairs that I like. If you ever go to Jake's house, he's a little obsessed with chairs. Um, and he just picks up all these different chairs probably because they have some, or he makes up some amazing story behind each chair. Um, but then I thought maybe it was the table, right? You got this long table that everybody is sitting at. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's cool to sit and gather around a long table. Like, I love these long tables. When I was a kid, we had this oak dining room table. Some of you can probably relate. You know, there was this dining room that always had this special table in it. So we had this oak dining room table. And one, one of my friends one day decided that he was going to carve his name into the table. And I don't know if it's because he was born in a barn or we were from Polk County because we were, I don't know what, the, what on earth made him think that was a good idea, but he carved his name, I mean, it was his own name, right? At least carved somebody else's name. So he carved his own name into the table. And so that's not something you can hide from your parents, Right? My 13-year-old just decided to get out a tablecloth and cover the table. Yeah, right, right. That doesn't happen. So, uh, you know, I'm, I have no idea what my mom's going to do when she gets home, my dad's going to do. So they come home, and my mom walks in, and she just stands there like every mom would. And she's like, and she doesn't say anything for like an eternity. And I'm wondering what in the world is going on in her mind. And then all of a sudden, after, you know, it felt like an hour, but it was probably like 10 seconds. She's like why don't we all just carve our names into the table? I was like, are there hidden cameras here? Like, is this a joke? Is, is this one of those traps where you try to pull me in and then I carve my name in and then I get in trouble too? Um, but that's what she did. So from that point on, as long as I can remember, everybody who walked into our house signed their name into that table. And a few weeks ago, a group of us were moving some things from here. My parents own a warehouse in Lakeland, and we were trying to not have to pay for storage as a church. So I convinced my dad that we could store some Creekside stuff in his warehouse. He said that was fine. So I'm, we're moving stuff into that warehouse, and I, there's like, you know, they have their own stuff in there. It's already their own storage. So I, I moved this thing out of the way, and I moved some stuff off, and I was like, that is the table. Like that is, I'm a picture of it. That is the table that I grew up with, with all of these names carved into the table. I mean, at some point you were carving over other people's names and it was kind of pointless, but I mean, it was just a really amazing thing. All these memories came rushing back in of all the meals that we shared, the conversations we had. And, you know, it's just, it's impactful. I was telling my mom last night, she was over and I was telling her that I was going to share this story today about that table. And she goes, you'll never guess what happened. She goes, last week I was in Sherman Williams and I was getting paint for the house. And she said, I was talking to this 40 year old guy behind the, you know, behind the counter when he, he's typing in my name. And as soon as I said, Sue Ladder, he goes, 
and he looks at me and he goes, I used to, I carved my name into your table. And I was like, and she said, she was like, what? And she goes, and I was in high school. I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And I swore that if I ever, when I got older and I had a table like that, I was going to let anybody who wanted to carve their name into the table, into my table, could carve their name into my table. So my mom said, she looked at him and goes, do you? And he said, I do. He goes, I have a table, our main table. People just carve their names in when they come in. Um, but you know what? I think what was cool when I walked in the warehouse and I, I saw that is you just, all these memories come up, right? Good conversations, bad conversations. It's just, it's life. Life is had around a dining room table. You know, you're sharing meals with people. I think that's what I love so much about that video clip is it just conjures up all of these ideas because there's something amazing about a meal shared with friends and family. Would you agree? There's something amazing about a meal shared with friends and family. A few years ago, we flew up to New York on Thanksgiving Flew into the city. We Ubered over to my sister's apartment. She lives in the Lower West Side. We flew over to her, or Ubered over to her apartment, put her stuff down, and then we were going to go out and have our Thanksgiving. It was Thursday. We we're going to go out and have our Thanksgiving meal. And I'm like, where are we going to get? You know, I'm kind of like, I want turkey. I want mashed potatoes. I want, like, where are we going to get this in the city? And I'm figuring we're going to end up in Chinatown. So she, we, instead of heading out the front door of her, she lives in like a five floor walk up. So instead of heading out the front door and going to eat, she takes us up to the fifth floor of her building. And we go down this little passageway up through this trap door and out onto a rooftop. This is not like one that had patio furniture and a little bar. I mean, this is like, you're not supposed to be up there, right? This is, has air conditioners and stuff. But somehow she had found a key. She said actually the prior owner had left her a key to the roof. When she moved in, she opened the drawer one of the, one of the, in the kitchen and there was a key like taped up in the back that she found when she was cleaning with a note on it that said, I hope you enjoy this key as much as I did. And so she found it before Thanksgiving, and she said, when they fly in, I'm going to have a Thanksgiving meal ready for them on my rooftop in New York City. So we all go up there, and we have Thanksgiving dinner on a rooftop in New York City. And it was, I mean, we sat there for hours as a family. It was just, I mean, it was, we were eating, we were drinking, we were just enjoying ourselves. And, you know, what's interesting is I think back over my life, some of the most amazing life-changing moments have happened over a meal. A meal, dessert, coffee, kitchen table, right? You think of these pivotal conversations that you've had, and I, I really think that's the way it should be. Because scripture, if you read scripture, the Lord loves celebrations. The Lord loves fellowship over a meal. Even his first miracle took place at a feast, a wedding celebration where he turned water into wine. Right? If you look at the Last Supper, you got this long table where all the disciples are gathered. He comes on the scene, he's you know, the feeding the 5,000. He's eating with sinners and tax collectors and people that the, the aristocracy said he shouldn't be eating with. But he's like, look, this is my kingdom and they need to know about my kingdom. And I'm going to share a meal with whoever I want to share with it with because I want to tell them about my kingdom. And today we're going to walk through one of my favorite Old Testament passages. It's a story found in the book of 2 Kings. And I know 2 Kings, you go ahead and turn there if you want. I know 2 Kings is kind of like an odd scripture to study in the month of December. So for those of you who are coming for a Christmas story, we'll do that next week. But Jake and I wanted to spend a couple weeks, we thought it was important to spend a couple weeks going through passages that have shaped who we are as pastors. 
like who have passages the Lord has used to change us, to guide us, to help lead us in a more effective way. And for me, this story in Second Kings encapsulates all of those things. And interestingly, it has nothing to do with food and fellowship, right? It's actually the opposite of all of those things I described at the beginning, because Israel finds themselves in the middle of a famine. And it's not just any normal famine. This is a war-induced famine, all right? The Syrians are literally cutting off the food supply and trying to starve out the Israelites, and so often when you think of a famine, at least I do, you think of, we, we automatically go to the obvious issue, which is food. It's a famine, you don't have food, all right? But we rarely think about all the other aspects of life that are impacted because of a famine. There's so much about life that is impacted, like no Thanksgiving, right? No, no friends gathered over for a meal, no rooftop celebrations, no church fellowships, no wedding banquets, no supper clubs, no restaurants in Tampa are opened, no grocery store has any food on the shelves. And so while you don't want to focus on food, a famine affects everything. It affects a lot of times who we are as people, the interaction we have, the one another's that you find in scripture. I mean, this was a big deal. So not only has the economic aspect of their life kind of ceased to exist, but the, the physical and the social aspects are dead as well. All right, so as we dive into 2 Kings chapter 6, we're probably 150 years after David. So we just spent a year walking through First and Second Samuel. So most of you know kind of where King David is in the, the long-term timeline of scripture, but we're probably 150 years after King David. When King David died, his son Solomon took over as king, all right? And they were probably, Israel was probably at its peak under Solomon, I mean, look at what Solomon did, the wisdom that Solomon had, the people who came from afar to hear his wisdom. The, the territories were expanded under David. The wealth came under Solomon. He built the temple that David had wanted to build for so long. The temple was built under Solomon. So Israel was probably at its peak under Solomon. But when he died, the kingdom split. Kingdom couldn't get along anymore after Solomon died. So two of the tribes kind of aligned together and they're in the south. And they, they take the name Judah, and their center of worship is in Jerusalem. And then you have 10 of the 12 tribes aligned together in the north, and their center of worship is in Samaria. So when you hear the New Testament, you talk about how the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. It, it, there's, there's a lot of other paths that are in there, but that beef originated way back when these tribes split, and one of them worshiped in Samaria, and one of them worshiped in Jerusalem. Okay, and so as you read First and Second Kings, it's the story of this divided kingdom and all the kings that would rule over the north, all the kings that would rule over the south. And since these kings were evil, God was not speaking to his people through kings. He spoke to his people through prophets. So when you read the Bible, in the Old Testament, you see a lot of books that are named for prophets. Isaiah, Jer you know, you kind of go through this. Well, that's because God was speaking to his people through prophets. And two of the first prophets that come on the scene are guys by the name of Elijah and Elisha. So if you've kind of wondered where they fit, that's where they fit into this overall scheme. So that's where we find ourselves. Second Kings chapter six, we're in Samaria, in the Northern tribes, we're in the middle of a war and we're in the middle of a famine. So things do not look good. So second Kings six, verse 24, let's jump in. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it. Now listen to, listen to how bad the famine was. 
until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver, the fourth part of a, of a cab of doves dung for five shekels of silver. So at this point, there was no food. There was no nothing. They were trying to sustain themselves on things that brought zero nutrition. It's like eating dirt almost. They were selling donkey's heads, doves dung. I mean, this is what they were trying to survive on because that's how bad things had gotten. And if you've ever seen you know, this, a movie where they kind of surround a city, think medieval times, right? Maybe Braveheart or something. They come up and they try to get in the wall, this wall of the city, they can't get in. So there's all these things you see, at least in the movies, and no doubt these actually took place of them trying to get in. So there's like fiery catapults. They're trying to throw ladders up there. They're trying to dig under the walls. Uh, but probably one of the most unique ways to get inside was to just starve your people out. Cut off their food supply, and if you could do it, it happened even quicker, cut off their water supply. And so that, that's literally what, it, what has happened, right? Instead of attacking, they just are trying to starve them out. And it's a really scary place to be because if you think about it, you have like the walls you have put up to protect yourself are slowly becoming this prison that keeps you from the sustenance needed for life. Does that make sense? I mean, and we could probably relate to that. At least I probably could. We'll save that sermon for another day. I could probably preach an entire sermon on this one little passage or this one little, this little phrase that says, the walls you've put up to protect yourself slowly becoming a prison that keep you from the sustenance needed for life. Like I, I, I know people say God can do this, but I don't, I don't really trust him. I, I know that God tells me to have faith here, but I got to protect myself right? I got to take care of me. And so we put up these walls and a lot of times those walls don't allow you to have faith. They don't allow you to trust. And that's, that's, that's a kind of a scary situation here where these walls they put up for protection are now becoming the very thing that keep them from life. All right. Verse 26. Now, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman came to him saying, now listen how outrageous this is. Help my Lord, O king. If, oh, hold on. I, sk- I skipped forward. Help, O Lord, my king. He said, if the Lord will not help you. Hold on. I skipped a verse. Okay, here we go. Now, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, help, my Lord, O king. And he said, if the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? And the king asked her, what's your trouble? She answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day, I said to her, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. Probably one of the most outrageous lines in all of scripture. When you hear the word severe famine in scripture, a lot of times you just refer to it as a famine. When they refer to it as a severe famine, when they put the word severe in front of it, this is what they're talking about. This is what everybody would conjure up in their mind when they hear severe famine. Oh, like that one time in Samaria where this happened. Like things had gotten so bad. Like a lot of us can't even fathom that. Like I would just die. I mean, you just don't even, don't even filter into your mind. But this is how crazy things had gotten. Donkey's head, doves dung, their own kids. Verse 30, when the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by in the wall. And the people looked and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, may God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat remains on his shoulders today. Now, now here's what you have to understand. God specifically told the people of Israel that their trouble 
or at least the majority of their trouble would be related to their sin. That's not to say that individuals, me personally, would not experience pain and suffering and heartache. But as a nation, the nation of Israel, if they were in turmoil and they would repent and turn back to the Lord, he would deliver them. You see it all the time. That promise is made in Deuteronomy. If you have a famine, here's probably why you have a famine. You have straight away as a nation, if you turn and repent and come back to me, I will deliver you. That's said over and over and over in scripture. And so again, individuals because of a fallen world would experience pain, but nationally that's the deal. So if you're reading this, it would seem like to me, the king is crying out to the Lord in repentance. He's in sackcloth. He's tearing his clothes. He's burdened for what's happening, but it's all on the outside. It's like the Pharisees. Jesus looks at the Pharisees and said, you are a whitewashed tomb. You're dead inside, but you look pretty to everybody around you. You're a whitewashed tomb. That's, that's the idea. And so when you look at the king, you're like, well, he looks like he's repenting. But if you dig down, verse 27, if the Lord, here's what he says to the lady, if the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? There's really no repentance in there. If the Lord's not going to help you, why should I help you? Verse 31, may God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha remains on his shoulders today. Kind of tough for your heart to be in the right place. If you're not only angry at God, but you said, if, if Elisha's still alive tomorrow, like that's, that's the end of it. Like he's, he's dead. His head better be in front of me tomorrow. And so here, here's, here's the thing. And here's why I kind of slow down on that point. True repentance will always be marked by a genuine desire for change. True repentance will always be marked by, and, and don't miss the fact that I said desire for change. Because you won't be perfect. We're all going to sin. We're all going to walk into things we shouldn't walk into. But do you desire, truly desire for God to change your life? It's a great question to ask yourself. Do I really want God to change my life? Like I'm a believer and I walk with him, but I'm okay with the status quo. Or do I truly desire for him to change my life? You know, so many people we kind of look the part, and I'm speaking to myself too. We look the part, we say the right things, but do we really want, all right, God, I know you want me to go this way. That looks a lot more fun over there. I know you want me to abstain from this kind of stuff because that's got me, in, but I enjoy that. I want to do that. Like I, I might call myself a believer, but do I really desire change? And so I'll, I'll just say this, your pursuit of holiness, not how well you succeed, because we're all going to fail, but your pursuit of holiness is a direct reflection of how much you trust in the goodness of God. Just think about it. If you have two paths, one you know is the path you shouldn't be on. It's this path of sin, let's say. And the other path is a path towards Jesus. And you have a choice to make. If you choose sin, then what you're really saying is, I don't think God is who he says he is. I don't think he can offer me peace. I don't think he can offer me joy. I don't think he can offer me satisfaction. So I'm going to get it somewhere else, right? I'm going to get it somewhere else. That's really what you're saying. And for the king, he has no faith in God, no faith that God can move on their behalf. And on top of that, he wants to kill Elisha. Like, give me Elisha's head. So then the story shifts to Elisha's place. Now we get a little window into Elisha. Verse 32, Elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence. So the king sent somebody over. But before the messenger arrived, 
Elisha said to the elders, do you see this murderer has sent to take off my head? So he's a prophet. He knows the guy's coming. And he's like, the king is sending somebody to take off my head. Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. It's a really good way to keep him out. So when he comes, hold the door so he can't get in. And he goes, is this not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, this trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? which is just more proof that they don't think God can deliver them. But I think that last phrase, why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Can you relate? God, God moves in a certain direction. You're obeying, you're obeying, you're obeying, and now you're tired of waiting because it just hasn't happened. Where you think the Lord is leading or where you wanted the Lord to lead or where you felt like the Lord told you to lead, go, okay, Lord, this is taking way too long. I said, you, I know you're gonna do X, but this is taking way too long. I know you're gonna you know, want to work in this person's life or work in this person's life or work in my life, but this is taking way too long. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Probably another sermon in there, but we're going to save it for another day. Then Elisha said, listen to the word of the Lord. So he's telling the king's messenger, tomorrow about this time, a measure of fine flour will be sold for a shekel, two measures of barley for a shekel in the gate of Samaria. The royal officer on whose hand the king was leaning answered the man of God and said, Behold, if the Lord would, should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? Then he said, Elisha looks at him and says, Behold, you will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. So the people are inside the city walls. They're terrified. They're starving. And Elisha says, Guess what? Tomorrow, at this time, everything's back to normal. Flour will be plentiful. Barley will be plentiful. You can afford it. And the king's messenger, the king's messenger who came is like, there's no way this is happening in 24 hours. Like if the windows were to open up from heaven and food were to fall out of the sky, essentially, there is no way. It's like this, it was actually an old phrase that they would always use from the days of Noah. When it says kind of the floodgates were opened and water just poured out, that, that's kind of what he's saying. It's like, uh, you know, it's just a saying. If God opened the gates of heaven, there is no way what you are telling me right now, Elisha, is really going to happen. Basically, you're crazy. And he goes, and here's, here's the key. I know you're a prophet. I know you are speaking on behalf of God, but not even God can fix this. That's essentially what he's saying. This situation, and personalize this. This situation is so bad that not even God can deliver us. It's pretty audacious, right? I mean, you're looking at a prophet, pretty audacious. Life takes an unexpected turn. The situation looks hopeless. And, and we may not be as bold as this king's officer and joke about God's inability to get us out of trouble. But the reality is, I think we demonstrate, I demonstrate what we believe by where we go when times get tough who we turn to when times get, when life punches you in the face, where do you go? When life punches you in the face, what do you do? Where do you go? You know, for some of us, some of you, I don't know that I'm quite there yet. For some of you, you've been through the ringer. Life has run you through the ringer. But here's the thing, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that God is your rock. Like when it comes, Lord, let's do this. Like, I know you have been there for me over and over and over and over, and life throws me a curveball, life punches me in the face. I am going to go to you no matter what. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. I have no idea how you're going to get me out of this situation, but you are the only one I can turn to. 
And then for some of us, we're not quite there, right? Deep down, when something happens, we still kind of wonder, I, I don't know if he's enough. When time gets tough, I just, I kind of want to run the other way. And I, I know this because I did that for years. When something bad happened, I ran to all kinds of things to pacify the pain. God says, trust me, I got this. And I'm like, I don't know if you do. I think I'm going to go over here. I'm going to handle this myself. I know you want the reins, but I want the reins. And we're going to argue over the reins for a while. And, you know, eventually I'm going to win because I want to control my life. And I don't know if I trust you. God. I don't know that you can give food in 24 hours when we're all dying of starvation. Like that would be a miracle upon miracle upon miracle. And I don't know if that can happen. So let me ask you a question before we move on. What areas of your life are you doubting the power of God? What areas of your life are you doubting the promises of God? Because it's what Satan does. Every, every single area of your life can be exposed through Satan's temptation and the waste. I mean, it's what he does. He's the father of lies. God says, we're going to do it this way. And Satan's like, no, you're not. God said, don't eat of the tree. Are you sure he really said, don't eat of the tree? Like it's been that way since the very beginning. God says, this is the way we're going. And Satan says, mm, let's go this way. Because God cannot do that. And so what areas of your life are you doubting? What areas of your life are you doubting the promises, relationships, addictions, your walk with Jesus, friends coming to know him, your job, your finances, your health? The list goes on and on and on of the ways that Satan will pick and prod and poke to try to get you to doubt who God is. Take it from someone who doubted God for many years. Trust him. And here's the thing. Even when you get the answer you didn't want to get, because life doesn't always turn out the way you want it to turn out. Trust him. Because a lot of times, I want this, I want this, I want this. Oh, okay, I'm not going to get that. Trust him. That's what faith is. Trusting him when you don't, you can't see the end of the road. He works in the most unexpected ways, which you're about to find out. Verse three. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. So at the gate of Samaria, there were these four men. They were lepers. And they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city and we shall die there. If we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So in those days, leprosy was obviously incurable. It was a, it was a death sentence. From the moment you looked down and saw that little white spot on your arm or your chest or your leg, it was done. Your life was over. You were immediately banished from the community you lived in. You had to live outside the walls. If you had to travel, so you lived outside in this little group of people that all had leprosy. And if you had to travel to get food or go anywhere, you had literally had to wear a rag over your mouth because in those days, unlike a lot of diseases, this was spread through sneezing and coughing. So you would have to wear a rag over your mouth and literally yell out, unclean, everywhere you went. If you saw somebody else, you had to yell out, unclean. So they would know, okay, that person's got leprosy. I must stay over here. So that, that was a life of someone that had leprosy. It was devastating. So now put yourself in their shoes. They're outside the walls. The Syrians are outside the walls. The lepers are, I mean, they're caught in the middle of a place that nobody would want to be caught. And here's what they say. Okay, the Syrians are over there beyond the, beyond the hills. And if they come this way, we're going to die. Right? But if we stay here, we're going to starve to death and we're going to die. So let's maybe go to the camp of the Syrians and we're probably going to die. 
but at least let's attempt to live and go over there. I mean, that's this conversation they're having. Why sit here until we die? Let's just, let's try to figure something out. And I love that phrase. Why are we sitting here until we die? And we'll come back to that later. Verse five. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and horses, the sound of a great army. So that they said to one another, behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of the Hittites and the king of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight, abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. So talk about the Lord working on your behalf. The Israelites did not lift a finger and the Lord caused all of their enemies to run to the hills. Literally, to run for the hills. And here's the thing, at this point, the only people who know that this has happened are those four lepers. It's crazy for me to think that in this moment, on that evening, that night, the people of Israel are back in Samaria living in total fear. They're all still terrified. They have no idea that the battle has already been won. Think about that. They are panicked for no reason. The battle has already been won. And it's, it's such a powerful thought. It's probably one that as followers of Christ, probably, a, I need them, right? This is another sermon for another day, right? The battle has been won, yet we live in fear. And that, that's where the Samaritans or the, the Israelites find themselves. But eventually, these guys with leprosy, they get full, probably. Their bellies get full. And they're like, all right, we, gotta do, we should probably do something about this. We've eaten more than we can eat. And they say, we got to let everybody else know. Verse 9. And they said to another, we are not doing, we are not doing right. This is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, we came to the camp of the Syrians and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard from or heard there. Nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done. So he still doesn't believe. I'll tell you what they've done. They know that we were hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. And his servants are like, you know, basically, okay, we're dying here. Let's at least see if this is real. So the next verse, one of his servants said, let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians saying, go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king. Verse 16, then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain of whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate and the people trampled him in the gate so that he died as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. And that's how the story ends. Such a random piece of Jewish history, right? 
And you're probably wondering, how in the world did this story shape me as a pastor? Like, what? Like, I don't get it. It's a random story in the Old Testament. Well, here's a couple things. Here's a couple things I love about it. First of all, God uses lepers to deliver the Israelites. These guys have been ridiculed, made fun of, avoided like the plague, literally. And God said, I'm going to use these four guys to accomplish my will. And I promise you, not one person in all of Samaria thought that they would be rescued by lepers. Not one person. But so often God uses the least of us to accomplish his purpose. Don't ever question what God can do through you and no question what he wants to do through you. If you had told me five years ago that I would be standing up here being a teaching pastor at a church, I'd have said you were crazy. Literally, I would have said you're crazy. I never worked in a church. I've never taken preaching classes. I went to seminary online, right? But, but guess what? God has, God's plans are bigger than my plans. And he works in ways that none of us expect. And my, my, my challenge or my question for you is where is God trying to work in your life? What passions, what giftings has he given to you to use for his kingdom? Seriously, that's a real, that is a live question. You can write it down. What areas of giftings, what talents, what, what, what does God want to do in your life to further his kingdom? Because what I don't want is us meandering through life wondering if anything amazing is ever going to happen. Because God wants to use you in a mighty way. And this is not like a rah-rah, you can be all... I'm being dead serious. We have giftings through the Holy Spirit that God wants to use for the kingdom. And I want you to use those to further the kingdom. And then the next thing I love is when the lepers found food, they actually came back. They said to one another, we are not doing right. This is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. Like they knew that they had found life. And there was this moment of recognition in their minds where they understood that everybody else needed to know what they knew. Like we have this knowledge that is going to save all of these people inside of Samaria who are dying. They're starving to death. So they left their Thanksgiving meal. They left their feast. They headed back to Samaria. They walked up to the gates and told the gatekeepers what they'd found. No doubt that took a lot of courage. Not only did it take the courage to actually go to the enemy's camp and to begin with, but once they found the treasure and they hid the treasure and found the food and ate the food, it took a lot of courage to leave and go back, to walk back and go tell everyone that they knew the good news of what they'd found. Right? Would you have done it? If you were in the lep, this is a serious question. If you were in the leper's shoes, would you have done it? Would you have gone back? I mean, it, seriously, I, had to, I sat there for like five minutes. Would I have gone back? People ridiculed me. They, you know, they, they banished me. Maybe God provided all that. Maybe, you know, maybe, maybe I, I just wrestled with it. I mean, would you have gone back to share the good news? It took love. It took compassion on people who ridiculed them and didn't want anything to do with them. But they showed love. They showed compassion to a city full of people who mistreated them. They were dead to society. If you were a leper, 
nine times out of 10, your family had a funeral for you. When you found out you had leprosy, your family had a funeral for you because they knew they were never going to see you again. You were dead to that city. And so for them to go back, I mean, it took love, it took compassion, it took sacrifice. Because the second they went back, told everybody what they had found, they were right back in the same situation they were when all this started. Banished outside the wall. Right? It's not like, oh, we found food, we found treasure. All right, come on in. Hang out with us. No. They're right back where they started outside the wall. But here's what they say. We are not doing right. And I love this phrase. Come, let us go and tell. Isn't that amazing? Never forget that as believers, we have the message. And sometimes, it's, I mean, no, this goes without saying, but I think we need to be reminded of it. We have the message of eternal life. We have the bread to feed people who are hungry, and we have to share the good news. And it takes courage, it takes compassion, it takes love, it takes sacrifice, but it's the right thing to do. And here's the thing, when they came to the city and they yelled it up to the gatekeepers what they'd found, nobody believed them. Sound familiar? Nobody believed them. They're like, yeah, right, that's not gonna happen. They're like, follow us. We will take you to bread, to feasting, to celebration, to treasure. You no longer have to live in fear. Come eat as much as you want. Feast, celebrate, but they doubted. They didn't believe that God could possibly save them in that way. You're telling me the Syrians left, they went to the hills, they left all their stuff behind, and we can go have much as we want. Not happening, right? Because there's no way God can do that. There's no way God can provide in that way. So as we, as we close, let me just encourage you with a couple thoughts. I know in a room of this size, there's people who are followers of Christ and probably people who aren't. You're still in that searching phase. So let me first say to people who aren't followers of Christ, I want you to know that God loves you and he always has. I, you know, growing up, I would always hear, like I, I knew about God. I always heard what people said about him, but I never truly believed that he could give me the peace that I was seeking. There's always that doubt, always that question. Well, I, I see how other people say it happens, but I don't know if that can, I was like the, the king's officer at the beginning of the story. There's no way God can fix this situation. He's not big enough to fix what I got going on in my life. And some of you are saying that right now. He is not big enough to fix the situation going on in my life. And that's, that's so not true. That's, this, that's Satan putting lies in your mind and telling you God is not capable of what he says he can do. So do you struggle? Do you struggle with trust? Do you wonder if God loves you, if he'll provide for you, if he'll care for you? Guess what? Life with Jesus is better than anything you could ever imagine. And, it, and it's so hard for me to explain it on this side of it. But being on both sides, especially in my adult life, I, I, I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, there's no going back. Once you experience the love of God, there is no going back. And unfortunately, sometimes it takes the worst situations in life to make you realize you're starving. Right? We call it rock bottom. I finally realize how hungry I really am. Like I've just kept up this facade and it's, you know, sometimes I look back in disbelief at all the stupid things I used to do. 
Because guess what? People who are hungry do crazy things to get full. And we saw that at the beginning of the story. Crazy things. And God knows what you're going through. He knows the variety of ways that you're trying to fill that void right now. So in Matthew verse 11, he looks at people like you and me. He goes, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John 6, he says this, I am the bread of life. And think about it in the context of what we just talked about. All these ways you're trying to get peace and joy and satisfaction out of life in all the wrong ways. I am the bread. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. It's not literally physical hunger. It's that hunger that's in your heart. You will not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That hunger can only be filled by Jesus. And I don't want you to let another day go by without making him king of your life. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins, for my sins. And then he rose again. And Romans 10 says this, and it's, he says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, like just say, you're Lord. Like I, I realize I've been doing this all the wrong way. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And then for those of you who, hey, I walk with Jesus. Let me challenge you as we move into 2020 that sometimes spiritual death is sitting and doing nothing. Sometimes spiritual death is just sitting and doing nothing. These gatherings we have on Sunday, they're great. They're biblical. But we have the good news of the kingdom of God. We know where there's food. We know where there's treasure. And sometimes it's, I'm going to be dead honest, sometimes it's easier just to sit on it ourselves. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of love. It takes a lot of compassion. I don't really want to take it anywhere. We have the good news of the kingdom of heaven. I love verse three. They said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? Think about that. Why are we just sitting here until we die? What would you have thought of the lepers? Think about it. What would you have thought of the lepers if they had all this food and all this treasure, but they didn't go back and share the good news. What if the story just ended and the lepers found the treasure, they found the tent, they went from tent to tent to tent to tent and they lived happily ever after and everybody in Samaria died. What would we as reading this think? We're like, lepers, go back. Just go tell them. Go tell them the good news of what you have found. And it's tough and you can, I love the parallel to the book of Romans. That verse I just read about confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart. Three verses later, Paul kind of continues the thought. And three verses later, this is what he says. He says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? And here it is. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Like I see the lepers all over that. I am a leper. I've had leprosy. I've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And I have the good news and I can take it anywhere I want. And that, I think that's the challenge for us today. These guys were dead, but they had the message that would save everyone. Charles Spurgeon said, surely Jesus did not come to save us that we might live unto ourselves. He came to save us from selfishness. 
Um, as I close, one quick story. I mentioned in the beginning, I love a good meal with friends, a meal with family. Seven years ago, February 23rd, 2012, to be exact, Courtney and I had dinner with a friend of ours to discuss life and church and ministry. We'd been married probably a year and a half, almost two years at that point. And we just felt like maybe God's doing something. Maybe he's calling us to a new ministry. And we just, we really had no idea what that looked like. And so over fried chicken, it's kind of embarrassing I remember this, but um, over fried chicken, collard greens, mac and cheese, and a small mom and pop's restaurant on Gandhi Boulevard, this friend that we had dinner with looked at us and said, I think you should pray about planting a church. I'll never forget this long list of reasons I gave him on why he was an idiot, really. I mean, it was like, really? Plant a church? <laughs> like, like, this, this, I've never worked in it. No, I'm going through all this list of why would I, I mean, just come on, seriously. Like, I'm just looking for a nice little church to attend. Like, that's what I need. Just a nice little church to attend. Don't give me all those reasons. But here's the thing. God used, we left that night, that little, that little restaurant, and God used that seed in our lives. And it took root, and it planted, and it grew, and it put this on us on this winding path that eventually led us to Creek Chide Church. We had no idea what God was planning, but he did, right? And I doubt Jake, as he uttered those words, because he was the one we were having dinner with, and he was in his happy little cozy little ministry doing his own little thing, never in a million years when he said we should go plant a church, I promise you, did he ever think that we would be together one day doing ministry? But God knew. Because God always knows what he's doing. And you don't see the end of the road, but God does. He knows everything that's going to happen. I have no idea, as I stand up here today, what the future of our little church is, but God does. And everybody in here is here for a reason. And in one of your pastors, I have no desire to just sit here until we die. None. The world is starving out there. And we have the bread of eternal life. It is the good news of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for odd Old Testament passages, Lord, that you can use to challenge us, to convict us, to just depress us along. Lord, thank you for using people who are unqualified, who have no experience, who are lepers to do your will. Lord, I thank you for Creekside Church. I thank you for just what you're doing here. Thank you for the people that you have brought here. And I just pray over 2020 and the years that follow, Lord, that we would realize that we do have the good news of the kingdom of God. We have the bread of life through your son, Jesus. And I pray that we would tell the world what we have. It may not be fun. It may take love. It may take compassion. It'll take sacrifice, but there's no other way to live. Lord, we love you and we thank you in your name. Amen.